Last week, sugar growers were confused. Hopefully, we'll replace that confusion with clarity this morning and we'll talk yields and yellows. It's been an exceptionally challenging year. It's been a very difficult campaign so far. There's been a number of factors which have influenced that. And we'll conclude a fascinating chat with the founder of the small robot company, Sam Watson-Jones, with a look into the future. We have a scanning robot that goes out over a field and shows the farmer exactly where every single weed is in the field. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Hello, hope you've had a good week. I'm pleased to say Sean Sparling and Kit Dickinson will be here a little later, but let's start with a look at the farming headlines. A group of three Lincolnshire growers and farmers who've already forced the AHDB to hold a ballot over the future of the horticulture levy are now trying to do the same for the potato sector. Veg and potato producer John Bratley was one of three growers who, in July, conducted an initial independent ballot, which he says indicated a significant level of discontent with the AHDB. HDB amongst potato growers. We'll have more on this in next week's farming programme. Lincolnshire farmer Andrew Ward was invited last week to take part in a Trade and Agriculture Commission discussion run by the Department for International Trade, seeking the views of the farming community. Morning, Andrew. Tell us more. Yeah, morning, um, Steve. I, I was quite um, privileged to be invited to take part in, in that discussion um, and really asking our opinion. But I, I thought it was really useful being able to get a, a farmer's perspective across to, to them because there are various issues we've got. Uh, and, of course, one of the main things we've got is the food standards job where, um, you know, as a farmer, I'm proud of the high standards of production we have here. And it's only right, all of us think, that really our imports match uh, our standards of food that we produce. But it is proving a, a tricky one, that one, for the, for the government to actually um, take that on board and agree to it. But, but the really good thing that's happened in the last two or three days is, is as you've just said, the Trade and Agricultural Commission has actually now been put on a statutory footing. It's a major achievement, definitely. I suppose the, the, the cynics amongst the farming community will ask, is it really going to have any teeth? I know, and I, and I do partly agree with you, with them, and I think really it's a question we've got to just try and let it work. But I think because it's statutory now and it's actually become law, that I, I think it's got to have to a degree... Obviously, we've got to wait and see what the first deals are done and see you know, the trade deals and, and see how uh, much of an impact it, it will have. But I think it can only be good. Is there a follow up to this meeting or is there an, another stage or, or was that it? No, I think we've been given an email address to send any points across that we didn't manage to get across in the meeting because it was only for just over an hour. Um, and obviously there was about 15 um, people on the call from NFU representatives, two or three farmers and, and the um, country landowners representative and people like that. So it was difficult to get everything across, but we have got an email uh, address for them. Um, and uh, we, we have been told that the Secretariat will, uh, will be in, in contact with us, you know, which is great. Many thanks for that, Andrew. Last week on the programme, we discussed an email which had concerned many sugar beet growers in the area. Let's try and clear up any confusion. Nick Morris from British Sugar. Morning. Morning, Steve. So this email that was sent a week or so ago to growers stating that financial penalties would be applied if they didn't produce their agreed tonnage, despite the conditions and everything else that's gone off this year, um, didn't actually come from British Sugar, though, did it? No, that's right. I think the uh, email which um, you were discussing on last week's show was the, the one that came from uh, NFU Sugar. And look, 
NFU Sugar, they do a great job in ensuring growers receive the information they need. And this communication was no different to that. In the end, it raised a few more questions and there was an assumption that we were referring to the delivery of this year's crop when I think it was actually more referring to uh, multi-year commitments uh, in um, the 2020 contract uh, that was signed for three years and subsequently multi-year contract. What exactly is British Sugar's position then? We're not going to be applying the contract performance rules to the 2020 crop results. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, this year uh, isn't going to count towards the growers' five-year average uh, in the context of uh, uh, the virus yellows assurance scheme. Moreover, we're also going to just discount 2020 uh, in consideration of future planning yield calculations. So we're not uh, uh, you know, imposing this year's uh, yield performance on, on growers' now or in the future okay well that's obviously good to hear that's the confusion dealt with we'll draw a line under that and move on and let's talk about yields because they are quite a way off where we'd like them to be aren't they yeah they are and uh, i know sean uh, went into some of this uh, uh, last week but it's, it's worth just repeating i think but it, it's not underestimated it's been an exceptionally challenging year it's been a very difficult campaign so far there's been a number of factors which have influenced that the weather over the last year has got to be the biggest influence surely the conditions have been dreadful those conditions really they favored an explosion uh, in the aphid population so uh, consequently to that of course we've seen a a significant infection of of virus yellows and just to um, make it worse in in some areas we've now got sarcospora which is a foliar leaf disease which has become quite well established uh, also. As I say, it's not everywhere, but in a number of areas it can be seen. So there are many, many factors have had an effect on, on this year's crop, and it's been uh, hugely, hugely challenging. Well, like we seem to be saying on just about everything farming-related uh, this year, let's look forward to 2021. It can't be any worse, surely. Uh, uh, absolutely. As I say, if you look at the things which have contributed to um, this year's crop performance, And like in many other sectors of agriculture and many other uh, crops which are grown, it's been a very, very challenging year and season, which has impacted on the performance of of all the crops in the farming rotation. But I think we do need to keep focused on uh, the future and what we're doing. And we're very, very fortunate in the sugar industry to work very closely with NFU Sugar and the British Beef Research Organisation. We're working tirelessly on the the long-term sustainability of our homegrown sugar industry, of which we're hugely proud. And uh, needless to say, we maintain a regular dialogue with government uh, on the challenges that we face. And fundamentally, we're, we're advocating for a level a level playing field. But uh, I think I just want to take the opportunity to um, give our um, sincere thanks to everyone across the industry for all of their hard work and, and tireless efforts. Not only is it during lockdown, but it's been through some pretty challenging times in terms of weather particularly through October and uh, everyone has done everything they can to keep us supplied with sugar beets so we're hugely grateful for that just to add we have our British Sugar contract manager network and they are able to provide support in all aspects of uh, of the crop so please anybody in the industry that uh, needs some help please don't hesitate to contact them and finally just to say yeah we wish all of our growers harvesting horse contractors and wider industry partner community a very safe campaign nick morris british sugar many thanks once again thank you for having me on the show steve so from sugar to sparling sean sparling has some timely agronomy advice for us once again morning sean 
Yes, very good morning to you, Steve. Yeah, I spoke to Nick on Monday afternoon, actually. I just think it's good to get all that confusion cleared up for the benefit of our beet growers, really. So that's a good job well done, I think. So a bit more of the wet stuff then. Um, and despite some decent temperatures and some blowy days, even a little bit of drizzle, things do not dry out particularly well at this time of year. So drilling on these heavier, clayier, stickier, outstanding soil types is a real challenge to say the least at the minute. Um, but as a general rule of thumb, you know, if you walk onto a field and it squelches, it's probably too wet to drill it. And similarly, as agronomists, we've got our squelchometers out for applying herbicides. So you need to pay particular attention when you're putting herbicides on to things like pendimethalin, prosulfocarb, fluphenicet, DFF, because all all of those residual herbicides which are the best things for blackgrass control their uptake effects can be significant when you apply them onto waterlogged soils but then if you get more rain and if it's so wet that it manages to filter its way down to the developing seed roots the plant roots then that's when you see the problem and uptake is very very obvious out there in the field as you drive around the county you can't fail to see fields with yellow headlands and overlaps where the spray has overlapped on the short rows for example so Remember that it is pretty much selectivity by depth protection. The seed is safe because it's out of the way of the herbicide. So you need to get your seed down to about 40 millimetres deep and wherever possible it needs to be covered because any seed which is exposed is likely to be severely damaged by pendimethalin and prosulfocarb. But flufenicet as an active ingredient will stop the little shoots breaking out of the coleoptile and that ends up looking like a little baseball bat and that will prove pretty much terminal on those affected seeds. So broadcast crops, of which we seem to have more this autumn than I've seen for a number of years where they've been spread on rather than drilled are at particular risk of herbicide damage due to the inconsistencies of depth but also if you add wet soils and wash down into that losses can be very very high now you have to look at it like it being an iceberg where you may well be able to see plenty of seed on the top but as long as you've accounted for that 90% of the seed should be underground and well covered so fingers crossed but check the label because some of these herbicides will have a restriction on them saying do not apply to broadcast crops speak to your advisor and make sure that you're safe now particularly in a black grass situation if you're putting wheat in the ground you're better to drill it because you really got to get these preems on don't waste your money on things like avidex if you've ended up with a sticky dodgy cloggy claggy seedbed that triolate gas needs to be held within a tilth in order to do its job so if in doubt save your money on triolate and prioritize these flufenicet type materials some preems are actually going on as these crops are emerging now because the weather changed after drilling the winds picked up the rain came and they've got through the ground before we've managed to get them on pre-emergence so you know simplify the mixtures you're putting on so for example straight liberator is much kinder to an emerging crop than mixing it with two or three partner residuals it's the flufenicet which is key for blackgrass so prioritize that oilseed rate Foma has slowed down a little bit. There's plenty of it out there in the field, but light leaf spot levels have definitely increased over the last few days, thanks to the, the wet and the mild conditions that we've had. So check your varieties for their disease ratings and prioritise the poorest disease-rated varieties you have. Check the growth stage, prioritise the smallest crops, particularly for things like Foma, because they will tend to fill up far more quickly than a large crop where it takes a lot longer for the, the lesion to make its way down to the stem. But 
you need to be in front of these diseases rather than following behind them. And remember that light leaf spot, we only have protection against light leaf spot. We can stop it spreading within the canopy for about three weeks after application, but we don't kill it. And with temperatures staying high, it looks like double figures next week. There's no frost forecast. So light leaf spot in particular is going to start moving within these canopies. And that can be quite dramatic in terms of its effect on final yield. So be vigilant. If you find those symptoms early, and they can be confused with fertilizer scorch and leaf miner as far as light leaf spot goes. So if in doubt, put some leaves in a polythene bag, pop it in the airing cupboard for 48 hours. And then when you bring it out, see if it's produced those characteristic little white specks and the halo around the lesion you suspected in the first place. And remember, prothioconazole, tebuconazole, probably the best two products for the job. Diphenoconazole, less so. Um, but they're going to do the best thing for that job. And work out which product you need based upon which diseases you have the most problems with in the field. So it's still way too warm for papismide, by the way. You know, mid-teen temperatures mean your soil temperatures are rising. They're not falling. And you need 8 degrees and falling at 10 centimetres or 10 degrees and falling at 30 centimetres for the optimum it'll still work but you lose longevity and efficacy so you're not getting so much for your money if it's too warm slugs appearing here and there so again these temperatures mean that emerged crops are actually growing away faster than the slugs can damage them so monitor emerged crops and prioritize the drilled crops and the crops you can't see and watch those for hollowing out of the grain in suspect areas get your slug traps out and in these wet conditions you're better to use ferrous phosphate to stop the metaldehyde type products further complicating water abstraction remember that metaldehyde is hydrophilic it attaches to water and then it goes wherever that water droplet goes and eventually that'll end up in reservoirs in some cases so it poses no threat to us to our health but it's very expensive to take out of the water so this week i've written to messrs eustace and prentice on a couple of matters they're my new pen pals one of which is to get some clarity on the bromoxanil use up data because next year of course we lose bromoxanil and we need to ensure we get a six month use up period like the rest of the EU to make sure that our onion and linseed, maize, cereal growers are competing on a level playing field with our European cousin. And also I've spoken to them about epoxyconazole for similar reasons really. So with a lovely warm dry-ish forecast 2020 nearly done plenty of crops in the ground slugs less of an issue than usual let's see what the next seven days bring us thanks as ever sean time now on the farming program for a little educated crystal ball gazing sam watson jones is the founder of the small robot company and over the last few weeks we've talked about all manner of farming related things and in conclusion let's look to the future sam for you and for farming what's next so I'll answer it as a small robot company and I'll answer it for the industry and sort of work work sort of further into the future. I think, as I said, over the next two to three to four years, you're going to see from small robot company this uh, commercialization of per plant farming. The first thing that we're going to be doing there is non-chemical weeding, where we are creating a per plant weed map for farmers so that we have a scanning robot that goes out over a field and shows the farmer exactly where every single weed is in the field. We then have a second robot that comes out. Um, so the first robot's called Tom. All our robots are, our robots are called Tom, Dick and Harry. Tom's the scanning robot. The second robot, Dick, uh, goes out and kills the weeds without using chemicals. So it physically touches the weed. It's actually not with a laser, but with an electrically charged arm. Sends electricity through the weed, kills it without using any chemicals. So we think it's going to be possible to move towards a world without herbicides in a relatively short time frame. So we're doing that for wheat initially, but we're going to be starting to offer that across multiple crops very soon. 
you know, I think per plant farming has huge potential. As we've discussed, that's not quite here yet, but not that far away. What if we jump a bit further into the future, 10 to 20 years, say? I point towards two things. So the first is I think that we're going to move towards an end to monocultures um, eventually. So this is where it's going to be possible to stick a seed in the ground, to watch that seed as it turns into a plant, to treat it individually, to treat one plant differently to the plant that's next to it, and then ultimately even to be able to harvest that plant individually. When we get to that point, I think we're going to see the monocultures that have become a feature of the countryside today and become a thing of the past and actually you're going to see biodiversity come back into fields you're going to have multiple commercial crops coexisting in a field next to each other Um, you're also going to have non-commercial crops mixed in there too that are providing cover and providing different um, different root exudates and interacting with the soil in different ways using different nutrients pulling down carbon as, as as we've said from the from the atmosphere and that is a huge transformation, but a hugely exciting transformation, and one that much more closely mimics the natural environment, and therefore the environmental impact of farming will reduce. The second thing I think is you're going to see, and this and these two things are interlinked, but you're going to see a transformation in the way that artificial intelligence impacts farming. So it's going to be possible to, because you've got artificial intelligence, to have that per plant understanding understanding of a field. The blur between the the online and the offline worlds is, uh, or it's that line is going to become more blurred. Um, so farms are going to become much more digital entities. Um, so if you're sitting in your on your farm in Lincolnshire, it's going to be possible to manage a farm in Brazil um, with the same level of accuracy, the same level of detail. As you can, um, you know, the, the field that is right outside your your bedroom window. Farms are going to become, to an extent, because they're digitised, they're going to become, to an extent, dematerialised. And so the physical location of a farmer uh, is going to become less important. And so one of the things that I think is exciting there is that the individual farmer, um, it's, it's going to become much more, much more of a meritocracy. Um, so it's not so much which farming family you happen to be born into or the fact that you were born into a farming family at all. You know, if you are a talented producer of food, the world is going to open up um, for you and, uh, and it's going to be possible to, to really break down those geographical boundaries. Um, and it's also you're going to see the farm is going to become sort of a, an unending set of data points with which it is possible to constantly interact. So you'll walk into a field and maybe you're wearing some sort of sensor but it will tell you it'll, it'll tell you instantly uh, where the microclimates are in the field and where the particular bad patches of of weeds or or, or disease issues are in the field and you're going to be able to make decisions based on really detailed again per, per plant data. Sam a huge thanks for what has been a fascinating and thought-provoking discussion over the last four weeks it certainly is going to be an interesting possibly challenging possibly highly rewarding future for farming and we'll stay close to developments on the program for now if someone wants to know more maybe get involved in the farm advisory group or the farm ambition program what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yes you can get in touch with me directly at Sam at smallrobotcompany.com. Send, send me an email, um, particularly if you're a farmer who's interested in getting involved in, in any way. 
now or, or in the future. And then more generally, if you want to join the discussion on, on Twitter, we're always very active on there. It's at smallrobotco. Uh, so yeah, we, we welcome uh, any conversation with people who are farmers or people who are just interested in where this technology is going. Um, it would be great to have you join the debate. And the website address is uh, www.smallrobotcompany.com. Sam Watson-Jones, thank you. Thanks, Steve. Let's get our weekly check of the markets and prices now with Openfield's Kit Dickinson. Morning, Kit. Good morning, Steve. The USDA came close to addressing many of the global issues, particularly on maize, which surprised the trade and firmed prices in the immediate aftermath of the USDA report. Wheat was seen as neutral, with Argentine production lower by 1 million metric tonnes, and Australia left unchanged at 28.5 million metric tonnes following this week's Abair report of 28.91 million metric tonnes, which some expected to be higher. Big changes came on maize in the US, EU, Ukraine and China. The US maize yield was cut more than anticipated, which, along with the increase in their exports to reflect the increased sales to China, knocked 12 million metric tonnes off their ending stocks. They increased Chinese maize imports by 6 million metric tonnes to 13 million metric tonnes, which still falls short of the 22 million tonnes forecast by the US attache in China, so more room for upwards revision in the future's reports. We have mentioned previously the potential issue of EU sourcing maize imports and this requirement this season against the backdrop of a much lower EU wheat number and suboptimal maize crop. The task will not have been made easier with the Ukraine maize crop being lowered by 8 million metric tonnes when you consider they supply 60% of the EU's maize. South American maize is still not available until mid-2021 and the cheapest maize in the world from the USA is largely excluded on GM grounds and is still has a 25% Trump import tax. The USDA's answer to this was to drop EU imports by 4 million metric tonnes and feed usage by 5.5 million metric tonnes. If only it was that easy. The more likely scenario is the EU will feed more wheat and other grains and export less. We are now back on to weather and we have to watch moistures in Russia and the La Nina weather event which could have major repercussions for both North and South America currently in the spotlight. COVID-19 is making its unexpected comeback but prospects of a vaccine in the not too distant future appear to have allayed fears in the financial and energy markets. Makes you wonder where we would be without the pandemic and Asian swine flu which has reportedly slashed demand. What will be gone first, COVID-19 or Donald Trump? It could be close. Malting barley, another steady week really with values remaining very tight range with very little trading taking place to influence ideas in the current time. The dry spell of weather in the last 10 days or so has allowed wheat drilling to continue, meaning the possibility of a more normalised spring cropping area for 2021 harvest, where at one point we did look like we could be heading for a repeat of the current season. Very limited chat on new crop as it has given a huge range of uncertainties over COVID issues. However, news of a vaccine should give some hope. Meanwhile, nearby focus is on execution as a reminder to move in November. Moisture levels, please do check them. We have now changed out the MAGB window, so please be aware of what spec you need to be hitting. Oilseed rate. This week, the UK market maintaining positive momentum ahead of Tuesday's USDA report. UK domestic values had seen a steady stream of support since hitting recent lows towards the end of October. News that positive data was being seen coming from a COVID vaccine trial supported all markets and along with the USDA report confirming that US soybean production and stocks continue to reduce, tightening supply side was supported. Bean values also pushed European futures higher too. 
The USDA also tweaked the South American production numbers. Argentine saw a 2 million tonne reduction, while Brazil remained unchanged. China looks set to continue buying beans for now, and they will have to be sourced from the US in the near term. Whilst markets remain buoyant, it should be noted that COVID cases continue to rise in Europe, and with the UK in a second lockdown period, albeit for the time being, this has given us a different view. Any knock-on sentiment could see retracement in values in the short term. Talking about values, moving on to prices this week, feed wheat for November is 186 to 188. February, 189 to 191. May, 192 to 194. And November new crop, 154 to 156. Milling wheat premiums are currently 23 to 25 pounds for the very best quality. Oilseed rate prices, 352 to 354 for November. February, 355 to 357. And that price remains flat through to the end of the season at May at 355 to 357. Feed barley for November is 136 to 138. Slight pressure given we are in the month of movement. February, 139 to 141. May 142 to 144 and November new crop 131 to 133. Malting premiums are circa £10 for a 185 nitrogen and £20 for a 165. Thank you, Kit. Kit Dickinson from Open Field back same time next Sunday. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. Wet and windy seems to be the order of the week ahead. Pressure's low today. Rain's expected for most of the day with the wind from the southwest in the mid-teens, gusting up to the mid-30s. A few sunny spells this afternoon, temperatures at around 11 Celsius. Gusty winds from the southwest to west continue for most of the week, only really easing off on Friday. Nighttime temperatures stay mild, no signs of any frost, although it does get colder from Friday. Monday should be cloudy but dry during the day. There's rain overnight, highs around 8 Celsius tomorrow. Tuesday sees some heavy rain overnight into Wednesday. Cloudy all day and mild with highs of 13 Celsius. The gusty winds continue on Wednesday and Thursday with a good chance of light rain pretty much all day on both days. Cooler on Friday with some heavy rain likely. The wind should ease but highs are expected to be no more than 5 Celsius at the end of the week. Well, that's it for this week. Do get in touch if you have a farming story to tell. Email farming at linksfm.co.uk or contact me through the app or the website. And we'll have more from the world of agriculture same time next Sunday. Until then, I'm Steve Orchard. Stay safe, stay positive and have a good farming week.